Hi everyone, Eric here. I want to introduce you to a new astronomic series called Satellite. Uh, satellite are going to be a bunch of around 10 minute long shows that are either hosted by just Hugh or I. Um, it's going to be only one of us. Um, the reason we're calling it Satellite is because it's going to revolve around the main series like a satellite. Also, satellites tend to be the smallest independent bodies in space. So uh, we're kind of a double entendre there. Um, so yeah, so look out for these. We're going to do them every Thursday morning, 8 a.m. During satellite episodes, they're going to cover a specific topic that falls into Hugh or I's expertise. So for example, I'm an economist. So my episodes are going to primarily focus on economics of space from a, you know, cost analysis, opportunity costs, and my background's in labor and public economics. So I'm also going to talk a lot about like government interactions and productivity of space travel whether you're in space trade or whatever it may be for that topic of the week. So join us. Satellite, I think, is going to be is a project I'm really excited for. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be short. And uh, so enjoy it. This week on Satellite, we're going to talk about the near future economics of low Earth orbit, particularly the economics of getting to low Earth orbit. We're going to talk about near, near term. So we're looking at like five to ten years down the road. Stuff we're seeing today, stuff we're going to see, you know, by, you know, the end, the end of the 2020s. Today, what I want to talk about are kind of the major differences between private and public in terms of the economics that affect them. Especially, and we're going to frame this around economic development. So when we talk about economic development, we, there are three major factors that impact the ability for an economy to develop. Um, and the three major factors are property rights laws, and barriers to entry. So particularly when we talk about property rights, especially in terms of economics, that's really the ability for an individual, a corporation, or any private entity to own something. And by being able to own something, particularly in economics, is the ability to have exclusive use of that capital or exclusive use of that resource. Um, so one of the reasons I fell in love with labor economics is the idea that labor is always privately owned. So your ability and your cho you choosing to work, whether you like your job or not, or whether somebody's forcing you to work or not, is still privately owned because the public can never, a public entity can never force you to work. They can make it incredibly cost prohibitive for you not to work, um, but you as an individual actually have the right to just say, no, I'm not gonna work, put your hands uh, by your side and not work. Um, and that gets really complicated. That's probably a topic for a much different show. There's definitely better economists that can explain that than I, but that's the reason I fell in love with labor economics. In my, day, in my day job, I, I do use a lot of public economics. So when we talk about property rights, especially from a public side or public versus private side, um, a private individual property rights really gives them exclusive access that makes their good, what we call in microeconomics, excludable. It gives them the right to not have somebody else use it. And in a lot of cases, it's also what we call um, rival, meaning if they use it, somebody else can't. There is certainly times that things are excludable, but not rival. Those are called club goods. Um, that gives a whole different field of economics. I'm sure many of our listeners do really like economics. So we're going to cover, we'll cover club goods and we'll talk to them throughout the course of astronomics as they become relative. But for this short form podcast, what we're like specifically uh, focusing on when we talk about property rights is private goods. Um, so what are property rights in reference to space, property rights? become very, very difficult to define because we really don't have any, you know, good structures, good social contracts, or even good 
measures in place to define what property rights are in space. One of the difficult things with property rights in space is um, when you have a, something in orbit, uh, it's going to it's going to path over it's going to go over a trajectory around the Earth. It, it just by nature it is, and we do not nations' borders don't extend infinitely into space. That just doesn't happen. So to define a pro, who defines a property right in large part is the government defines a property right. So when we're talking about one of these barriers to entry, I'm actually going to submit that you know even though property rights are important and one of the cornerstones of understanding economic development. Property rights, we're going to say, are going to be held equal because at the end of the day, they're just too hard to enforce. And when you can't enforce a property right, um, it really loses its value. One day, now we're only talking near future, five, ten years. But one day, we know when we develop Moon, we develop, develop Mars and Europa or asteroids or what have you, we're going to have to come up with a system to enforce property rights. Um, that's usually courts and contracts, and um, especially if they adopt common law. Hugh did a great job talking about that in episode two. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I recommend it. He does a good job talking about it. Uh, particularly, it's not my field of expertise. I'm only going to talk about it in an economic sense. Um, so if you don't have the ability to enforce property rights, uh, they really, when you talk about economic development, whether it's private or public, economic development being spurred in space, if you can't enforce the laws, well then, we, we have to hold them moot or at least remove them from our analysis. Remember, we only, want to, we only, from an economic standpoint, want to analyze things that we can control for and things we can try and understand. Um, it's really, I had a great professor who always said, economists measure real variables. Real things affect real variables. Ignore the nominal. In other words, ignore the things that you really can't change and don't carry impactful differences between two situations. The other one is laws. And property right and laws are very similar. But when I say laws, what I'm talking about is the public sector, or government, I should say, making and establishing the bounds of the playing field. Now, the reason that when we do private versus public on how they interact in the near term um, in terms of economic space development, this kind of is a crucial difference because the laws that the government are going to pass are always going to have the public sector more in mind because they're making laws about themselves. So one of the best examples that it, we call this command and control microeconomics. The government could pass a law, the U.S. government could pass a law that basically says only NASA is allowed to send space shuttles into orbit or spacecrafts into orbit, or only the U.S. government's allowed to, uh, only NASA is allowed to launch satellites. And what they would do, one, that would really increase the cost it is to launch satellites, and there's a bunch of other stuff. But these companies on the private sector can just go to another country, build a spaceport, and launch from it. So when we talk about like command and control laws or laws that try and reduce the number of actors in an economy, especially for space travel. Um, that's another one where we're not, it's not the most pressing thing for our understanding because as long as one country, one scrap, tiny island on earth, one scrap of land, whatever have you, says it's okay to launch from, then that's just where everybody will go. Um, it, it's just, there's no world government as much as the UN tries to be if the UN the, the UN hasn't proven itself effective in, in issues like this. And I don't really think the, U, if these aren't, the UN would even be able to have a say in this. It's a little outside my uh, expertise. But either way, because you can't have one uniform code of law across the entire world to stop a company from launching into space. Again, I'm going to submit that um, a command control function from a legal side would be ineffective in this analysis. I know I'm caveating and couching all these. I just want to be upfront with you that when you talk about economic development, Property rights and legal structure, well, laws, are very, very important to understand economic development. So I don't want to ignore them. I want to be honest with you guys. 
there are you can disagree with me you can leave us a message you can send me an email you can yell at me and i i, I love all economic opinions even if i don't agree with them as long as they're based in rational a rational view and i i, I love our listeners so i think most of you guys are rational so with that said it comes to this third part which is barriers to entry and i really want to talk about barriers to entry that's what most of this show is going to be about what is a barrier to entry? Well, it's just a resource threshold needed to enter a market. It's really no more complicated than that. I'm sure if you take, if you break out an econ textbook, or if any of you guys you know majored in business or did major in econ, um, you probably heard this term a hundred times. But in its simplest form, and I'm sure you know this is much more sophisticated and verbiose uh, ways to word this. But at the end of the day, it's how it's resources needed to enter a market. So. A really low barrier to entry would be like setting up a lemonade stand. Like you could just go outside and set up a lemonade stand. Your barrier to entry is a table, sugar, lemons, and water. Um, a very high, high, high barrier to entry would be like entering, um, providing power. Building a power plant has a very high barrier to entry. There's legal requirements, cash requirements, expertise requirements. And it's not always capital. I think that's sometimes something that gets um, laicized in the explanation of barrier to entry. And one thing this show is going to strive to do is not it's going we're going to use the jargon and language that's used in the field uh because it's going to make you know it's going to help us all talk and understand the same this also when we look at cost functions and we look at production functions one of the things we talk about is like wage and that's also labor wage it's not just how much capital costs it's also how much labor costs so you can have a barrier to entry just because there's not enough people to do a job um, in terms of space, I'll give you a really good example, which is the Rocket Dime engine, which is the engine that was used for the Saturn V rockets. Those engines, NASA is having, you can't really recreate them. And there's a myth that NASA lost the plans. That's not what happened. Each Rocket Dime engine was really a work of art that was done by these really, really skilled welders who teamed up with these really skilled engineers. So could NASA rebuild a Rocket Dime engine? Absolutely, it's NASA. And are, are rocket dimes even rocket dime engines more effective than engines today? They they actually are, but they it, the time cost it does in the to produce one is so insane, and the amount of expertise needed to build them really isn't there because we don't have welders of that caliber anymore. That it's just not worth it. So, barriers to entry can also be labor. So when we talk about space economic development, I think one of the biggest barriers to entry is going to be. Now, it's going to be astronaut programs. And I think that's where the public sector has a huge, huge, huge advantage is that they have these programs that can produce astronauts. The U.S. military produces astronauts. They also have private pro They also have NASA-specific programs for, for producing astronauts. Um, and these pipelines of astronauts, which are you know very rare skill set individuals, already exist. So I think that's a huge advantage for the public sector. The public sector also has far more money. Um, the U.S. government spends like $4 trillion a year in that type of access to funds, it can deficit spend. It's it's debt is as much as people want to tell you their debt. The U.S. debt is very very. The U.S. bonds are very strong. So when we look at you know the difference, compare and contrasting, we we know property rights and laws are going to kind of be held equal. So we're really concentrating right now in in low Earth orbit and economic development. We talk about the public sector has access to more funds, um, but they also have some other issues, which is that they have access to funds, but there's other obligations. A dollar getting spent on NASA. Is really a dollar getting taken away from another social, getting taken away from another program, whether it be a social program, whether it be the U.S. military, whether it be you know aid in foreign countries. Um, so that brings me to kind of one of the difficult aspects about you know public 
uh, the public side developing in space. And that is, um, there needs to be will. There needs to be political will. And political capital and political will is often pretty hard to get. The reason some of the last Apollo missions were canceled was because the public lost interest in going to the moon. They didn't see a benefit in it. Um, that can happen, and that's susceptible in the public sector. Um, in a few minutes, I'm going to start. To, I'm going to talk to the private sector, but just to jump ahead a little bit, is that the private sector has a huge advantage in terms of that. If somebody's investing in a space company, they want it. They want that company to go to space. That's why they're investing in there. So, who they're responsible for? That private company, that private corporation, the people they're responsible to. Almost, they, they demand they go to space. They demand to continue this development. And that's going to give the private sector, though it's smaller, make it a little more nimble. So the last point I wanted to close out with public sector is that, um, is really the political weight side of it. Is when you have politics getting involved in economic development, that can slow the process. That's, that, that's, that's just part of the nature if we look at federal programs in terms of large-scale economic development. Uh, it's not it's not a bad thing actually. Um, there are I mean you look at the Interstate Highway Act, you look at the Marshall Plan, you look at all these like massive government expenditure projects that they have spread economic development. The only reason I bring up it in space is um, economic development plans that are tangible on Earth, like the WPA and the Interstate Highway Act. Like the average citizen is going to be able to use that road. It's going to have a job through WPA or the Triple C or whatever the program was. So they're more apt to be engaged with it. Space is so far removed that uh, there, there can be apathy, or sometimes even beyond apathy, there can be uh, almost like contention with it. Like, no, I want that money spent on Earth. Every dollar NASA spends gets, gets spent on Earth. They're not going up to space and buying vending, there's not vending machines up there. Um, so yeah, the, the idea that you spend money in space, it somehow doesn't work into economic multipliers is doesn't really stand up to logic because that money has been spent on Earth, on everything to get, anything up into uh, up into orbit but on the private side like i mentioned there's more willpower because if you're an individual investing in spacex and virgin galactic and blue origin or any of these companies um and they're not going to space they're going to remove your money and that allows them to develop stuff a lot faster um such a huge advantage they may not have the scale in terms of the money that the federal government has but it they do have the willpower which sometimes be more valuable like we talked about earlier, one of the advantages of the private sector is that if there's laws or, you know, issues that, domestic issues, they can always move their company to a different area. Um, that's just a huge advantage is that they don't have to deal with political strife because they can always, if they're in a country that doesn't want a space launch or something controversial they want to launch, they can just go to a different country and launch it from there. Or if there's too high standards, then... That can also be an issue. Um, so that's why you see like cruise ships are registered. Not There's only one cruise ship registered in the United States. So all these cruise ships are registered in different nations. That's part of it. And you, you would see that if like you started seeing really, really strong command and control functions and command and control laws getting passed to stop space entry. I don't think that's going to happen. Like I mentioned earlier, that sole focus that they have on accomplishing the development of space is that they, were, they need economic development to happen there. So... What I want to what I want to establish is I don't think this is like the U.S. versus the Soviets in during the Cold War where these two entities the private and the public sector are competing against each other. I actually think it's the opposite. I think the public and private sector have kind of a beautiful symbiosis where the public sector can secure this large amount of funding that may be difficult to get um, if you're trying to generate it through private capital and give it to the private industries like we saw with SpaceX sending 
manned missions back to the uh, International Space Station. That was awesome. It's an amazing human achievement. So I think that's really important is that these people aren't competing. These private and public entities aren't competing against each other. They're force multipliers. We can take both advantage. We can take the advantages of both and combine them to help economic development in the future of space travel. But what what I want to close on is an economic uh, exercise we do, which is called Little Pig Big Pig. Little Pig Big Pig is a, actually a form of game theory. So if you guys have ever seen A Beautiful Mind, if you're familiar with the works of Vernon Smith, game theory is a microeconomic tool we use. Or, to establish how individuals would act, would react within a given scenario. So little pig, big pig basically tells us that if you have a little pig and a big pig and they're fighting over food in a trough and at the under, other end of the pen is a lever to pull that would drop food to the trough, it serves the little pig better to just wait by the trough for the big pig to pull it. Because if it tries to fight the big pig to pull at the trough, or to pull the lever, it's always going to lose. In the grand scheme of things, a it's hard for any company to compete with the United States government. We it's just the U.S. government has the ability to outspend if it's really that precedent. So instead of trying to monopolize space, like a, instead of a corporation trying to monopolize space, instead if it acts as a little pig, and says you know allows NASA to go to the trough for a better example and get the cash and get the resources needed. And they're going to wait and they're going to perfect their individual systems. They're going to create cost efficiencies within their own actions. Like, you know, uh, rocket boosters that can return to Earth without having to crash. Reusable rocket boosters. If they focus on what makes them good, and the U.S. government can, you know, pull the NASA can pull the lever and get the trough to open. And they can give it to the, they give it to corporations that can then use those dollars very eff efficiently to accomplish the goals of NASA. There can be a beautiful symbiosis. This does not have to be. These are not substitutable goods. These are complementary goods. I think we're all better off with everybody working together. I think that's what the future is going to look like. I think you're going to see NASA securing large amounts of money to develop individual programs and then giving it to the private sector, where the private sector is going to be obsessed with reducing cost overruns and accomplishing a mission at a fixed price. So I don't want to think of all these great companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and a myriad of other companies. There's been companies around for longer that have launched satellites. I don't want to think, I don't, as an economist, I don't think they have to be competitive to each other. I think if they work together to accomplish this common goal, that you'll actually see a greater economic benefit and a quicker development space. Thank you everyone for joining me on the first episode of Satellites. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Again, we're going to, it's going to be shorter in the future. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us. We're going to keep doing this every, check out, we're going to be out every Thursday. So Monday, 8 a.m., your regular astronomics episode. Thursday, 8 a.m. is going to have your satellite episode. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you guys again. Remember, drop us messages. We're up on Facebook now. We're, uh, you know, we have, we have our website up too. Reach out to us. We'd love to hear people. Take your question. We'll take your questions. We'll answer your questions. Whatever you'd like. Uh, so thank you again. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon.